0: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadoulou. Tom Williams is a curator at the British Museum and the author of a new history of Britain in the Dark Ages, Lost Realms. Earlier this year, he joined Luke Naylor-Perrett to transport us back to early medieval Britain, a world of lost kingdoms, magic and war, myth
1: and miracle. Tom, I want to start at a simple but I think important place, which is the traditional narrative of Dark Age Britain. Could you could you start by setting that case forward before we absolutely destroy it?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, it, it, it depends a little bit on what we think we mean by the Dark Ages, because it's such an amorphous term. It gets thrown around a lot to describe time periods ranging from 400 to 600, sometimes through to the Viking Age, sometimes... In a really cavalier manner, it's, it's used to apply to the whole of the early medieval period up to the Norman Conquest. But it, it tends to be used to describe the, the, earlier, the earlier segment of that span. And to, to really oversimplify, it's a narrative that is based on the surviving narrative histories, principally the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle uh, and Bede's Ecclesiastical History and the the, uh, the surviving writers of the Welsh monk Gildas. And what these what these narratives describe is a, a process by which migrants from what is now northern Germany, Denmark, the Low Countries, came to Britain in the, the, the aftermath of the collapse of the Roman administration, and violently, you'd have to say, genocidally, um, in the, in the sort of lurid terms that it, it's painted in these, these sources, displaced the native British population, driving them into to Wales, Cornwall, uh, and and the north and set up a number of competing kingdoms, Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, as, as these, these newcomers are generally termed, and um, that these kingdoms then competed amongst themselves uh, for supremacy on the island, and also against the, the surviving Britons of the West and, and North, until ultimately only a handful survived, uh, though the, the big players being Northumbria in the North East, uh, Wessex uh, south of the Thames, uh, Mercia in the Midlands, and East Anglia in East Anglia. All of that, of course, then gets thrown up in the air by the by the, the Vikings, mainly in the 9th century. The Viking Age starts a little bit before that, but 9th century really sort of upends that, that gaming table. And the, the wars that then follow end with, with Wessex, the, the, the kingdom of southern, the southern portion of, of what's now England, effectively conquering all the rest of what is now England, uh, that being then the birth of the English nation. Um, meanwhile, Wales is still divided into a number of separate principalities. Scotland forms as an independent nation in the same time span under similar pressures. And then the rest of British history proceeds from that, that, that point. That is the kind of standard story of how we get from Roman Britain to
1: medieval Britain. Amazing. So that is... As far as we're going to give that, and, and now we're going to problematize it uh, almost entirely. Starting with the phrase dark ages, which, uh, I mean, you say in the book, all ages of the past are dark. Beyond just that, is the term dark ages problematic? Is it useful? It, it, go into that a little bit, please.
2: Well, I mean,
1: I've always rather
2: liked it personally, because... One of the things that, that drew me to to studying history, to studying this period in particular, is the sense that there is a, a mystery at the heart of it. You know, what the Dark Ages, or well, why why are they dark? What 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 lurks in the shadow? I want to find out. I want to know. And taking that away from people, I think, it doesn't do any services to, to the study of history. I think if something is inspiring and interesting, it, it doesn't deserve to be thrown in the bin. In terms of whether it's an accurate description of the period, well, uh, I mean, in many ways, it it is a a very accurate description of the period, because if we think of the term dark as meaning without illumination from credible historical sources, the Dark Ages are probably the least well-illuminated of any period of British history that you could call historical. Obviously, there's a huge backstory of prehistory that we, we wouldn't call dark because it, well, we would call it dark, but anyway. So yes, they are certainly ages that are dark for that reason. But also, I mean, in a qualitative sense, archaeologists in particular, but historians as well, have really emphasised that we shouldn't think of these this period as being backward and degenerate in, in some way. And that that's that's absolutely fair. I mean, there are extraordinary works of art that were created during that, that span. What we're talking about really, I suppose, here is the period between 400 and to be very generous up to, up to the beginning of the Viking Age. Extraordinary works of art and, and later extraordinary works of literature as well. But there can't be any doubt really that the, the collapse of the Roman administration in Britain was a profoundly traumatic and shocking event that people suffered extraordinary uh, hardships and reversals in in the kind of economic basis of their lives. There was war, there was pestilence, there was famine. So pretty horrible, actually, for for lots of people, lots of the time. And I I think we lose sight of the reality of of historical difficulties, partly because we've lived through a a very peaceful uh, and prosperous age, between the end of the Second World War in the West up to roughly about now, when things are going a little bit pear-shaped again, so yeah, perhaps that that provides a bit more context that you know actually really bad things happen and they 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 really do affect people. So we don't need to whitewash it and say oh it wasn't so bad, really was it? Because you could still farm and you could still get your pot and whatever. I mean this is thin gruel if you've just experienced a massive reversal in, in living standards and. And, and prospects.
1: So, we're going to put a pin in the decline uh, post Rome because I think that's an, a really interesting topic in and of itself. But just one more thing that I really want to attack in the traditional Dark Ages narrative is that sense of mass migration, which is something that has never been weaponized recently in British politics. But this idea that waves of foreigners changed the country in bloody and brutal ways. Fact, fiction, bit of both. Can you just briefly sort of touch on that, please? Hordes of migrants swamping the indigenous culture of
2: Britain is the, is the way it's sometimes framed. I mean, this is one of the most contentious topics in all of British archaeology. And to this day, there, there really isn't any consensus about the scale of migration, the nature of the migration, and how the, the, the process of, of cultural change proceeded. What is incontrovertible is that migration did occur and it was non-trivial. There are lots of reasons we know that that is the case, because for one thing, the English language is the language spoken pretty much all across this island uh, and not just in England. Also because the the burial practices, particularly in eastern parts of of England, transformed in a direction that aligned them very closely with communities in Northern Europe and Scandinavia. And it's very hard to explain why that would have been the case Simply through some sort of cultural shift, and um, there is some genetic evidence as well to, to demonstrate that, that 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 impact is real. But as I say, what we what we cannot say is how many people were involved, and really what the nature of it was. We know what people writing in the eighth century and later. Uh, thought about it, uh, and we know what Gildas thought about it in, in his own mind, which may or may not, and it, he was back projecting uh, uh, as well by possibly as much as a century. But we don't, we don't really understand it very clearly, although I have ideas about it. Many archaeologists have ideas about it. Many archaeologists don't agree about it, and we'll, I'm sure
1: we'll get into some of the finer points. Your hatred, or, or rather distaste, of Gildas and Bede and all of the traditional sources is Beautiful and prevalent. <laughs> um, so speaking on this, this other, this 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 foreign other, Demonia, which is in Cornwall and, and the Cornish to some extent, um, but Fortu in in the north, the Picts in particular are horribly stereotyped in the sources and by pop culture and, and by even by historians. You know, I'm just I've got a list here. The Picts are called stunted dwarves, worms, swarms, ants, savages, living fossils. <laughs> I'm going to tee this one up easily. Was there any truth to these caricatures? And then, and then secondly, why is it important to problematise them? No,
2: I, I think it's absurd. It would be absurd to suggest there's, there's any truth, or at least that they were any different to anybody else uh, around at the time. The reason these things came about is because the, the surviving written, written uh, narratives are exclusively from the perspective of people who wanted to, to shut them down or demonise them. So the, the earliest references to the Picts, for example, the, the people of, of Northern Britain, north of Hadrian's Wall, uh, were written by Roman writers when Rome was in conflict with, with that, that, that portion of Britain. And they described them in, in quite uh, formulaic terms from a Roman perspective as naked, howling barbarians who painted their bodies. And that, that was just a, sort of a, a shorthand way of saying they're not like us, they're not Romans. And that's picked up on by medieval writers later on who are, again, writing from mostly uh, an english perspective and of course those ideas played very happily in the later middle ages during the uh, english wars against scotland and and effectively forever afterwards the, the demonization of of the, uh, the the northern britons of of what is now scotland has been a, a, an ever evergreen thing but no i mean outside of those writings uh, which i don't think we should give too much credibility to uh, the archaeology paints an entirely different picture. There are, you know, the, the examples, the, the easy examples to give it for, for the Pictish kingdom of, of Fortriu is this uh, astounding explosion of, of carved monuments, the, the Pictish symbol stones. And those artistic traditions then bleed into manuscript illumination traditions uh, where, once the Picts become Christianized. And those have a, a, an influence much more widely in, in Britain as well. So there's an extraordinary artistic legacy. Sadly, we don't have anything more to to, to explain what they may have meant and where these traditions came from. But but no, they, they're not the work of sort of crazy, howling
1: savages living in you know, caves. It's it's a nonsense. Good. Thank you for, for clearing that up, um, as if there's any doubt. So you spoke there about the sort of the back projecting, and I think... One of the things I have to I have to mention, and we'll get it out of the way now, which is in your discussion of demonia, um, and you mentioned Tintagel, which is this fortress, this this you know amazing archaeological site, the home of, of a little guy called uh, King Arthur, maybe. Um, you describe him uh, rather brilliantly as quote a Christian paragon who, with a host of noble companions and a magic sword, put the world to rights with a blaze of godly triumphalism and mountains of slaughtered foreigners and immigrants. Bluntly, <laughs> who was the real King Arthur? How much do we know about him?
2: We know absolutely nothing about him. If he was a real person, he exists in the earliest sources to mention mention Arthur are the ninth century from the ninth day from the ninth century with one possible exception. So the the body of what we, we think we know about King Arthur that is genuinely old, but, but not nearly as old as, as he was supposed to, to exist, dates to the early 9th century, the Historia Bretonum. And that famously includes a list of Arthur's battles where we have a, a description of the, the many wars that he fought against the Saxons. And that's the kind of the bedrock of, of his, his myth. And a, a lot was built on top of that. There is one line in a poem attributed to a chap called Anierin, called Agadovan, which is about a a doomed military uh, debacle in the north of England, in which one of the the protagonists who who is killed, well, they're all killed, actually, but so one of the protagonists is described as being slightly backhandedly, he was no Arthur. Uh, And it's, it's assumed, although not for any particularly good reason, that the Arthur that's being referred to is the Arthur. If so, that poem might date to the sixth century in its earliest form, which would put it pretty close to when we think a historical Arthur would have had to have lived. But the problem is that opinion is hopelessly divided about whether Agadol then actually really is that old. If it is that old, which parts of it are that old? If there is a reference to Arthur, and it is a reference to Arthur, is it original? So, I mean, we get lost in the weeds with this very, very quickly. What is certainly true is that the prototypes for Arthur-like figures are present in um, some of the earliest written records we have. And certainly there are figures who do present as warlords who f- did fight against the the communities, the newer communities that were developing in, in Eastern, Eastern Britain under the pressures of migration. Actually, many of them are much more credible than, than any... Arthur, I think really, it's, a, it's sort of a waste of time
1: looking for a historical Arthur.
2: There are loads of people who who fit the fit the fit the bill. Um, if you want to find a hero, then there are there are others to choose from. Frankly,
1: oh, you've broken my heart, broken my heart, Tom. So
2: doesn't mean I don't <laughs> love. I, mean, I love the Arthurian stories are, are absolutely wonderful, and I, I I love them to bits. But um, but he probably didn't exist. Oh. No, there's no there's no reason to think. That there's no reason that he couldn't have done, is what I'm trying to say. There, are, as I said, there are lots of other people doing similar sorts of things to the things that Arthur is supposed to have done, and so maybe he did, but there isn't any good evidence that he did. And, and I, I would recommend actually, there's a book by Guy Halsall called Worlds of Arthur. Uh, so if you'd want to want to see how that the evidence for a historical Arthur is 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 laid out and then demolished, it's a it's a it's a masterclass in in that.
1: Okay, well, um, well, let's do some more demolishing. Um, or maybe not, which is that um, I suppose one of the, the, the traditional narratives of the Dark Ages Britain is that as Rome declined, Christianity rose. So let's start with the decline of Rome, because as you said, it's a really interesting moment in British history. You have some really visceral descriptions of what it would have been like in a city in, in London, in Gloucester, that saw the Romans leave. Could you just sort of airdrop us into that world a little bit, please? I mean, I think the thing that's that's quite
2: quite shocking. I, I still find it hard to get my head around it. Is the the speed of of the the economic collapse? So, and I, I use this this sort of uh, descriptive device in the book. But but a, but a child who grew up in Sirencest to say in the in the three eighties would have been born in a world where people were still laying elaborate mosaic floors, living in palatial villas with underfloor heating. They were using freshly minted silver coins in their transactions. Uh, the cities were filled with craftsmen producing specialist pottery and, and um, tesserae for mosaics and hyper repairs. Anything you can think of that, a, that, a, that a, an urban space might need, there were, there were specialists available to do that. There was effective policing and tax collecting. Agricultural produce came from the countryside to feed these, these people. By the time that child died... The coin economy had completely collapsed. No new coins were entering Britain at all. There was no effective policing whatsoever. The Roman legions had been withdrawn and never returned. As a result, taxation no longer operated. There was no food available for urban dwellers at all. Uh, Habitations swiftly fell into disrepair. So by the early part of the 5th century, many townhouses had been completely abandoned and collapse had already set in where people did remain, dwellings had reduced to sometimes to just one room inside a house with, with hearths you know, smashed through the, the mosaic floors to, to create a source of warmth. Cemeteries were starting to fall out of use, at least the traditional cemeteries, the traditional urban cemeteries and, and bodies were being buried in roadside ditches. Roads were no longer being maintained. Um, and that's in the course of a single lifetime, a single generation. And so an individual would have lived through this and witnessed the the collapse. And we get used to dealing with um, time spans as, as, as historians of this period, ancient world, the medieval period, in, in centuries sometimes, and it's, it's easy to lose sight of that kind of human, that human uh, lifespan, that human experience of, of what it meant. But I think, from any perspective, that that is a, a pretty savage shock. And it's interesting that, that I, I was putting the final touches to this book just as the the uh, the war in ukraine was was starting to, to to really really take hold and seeing those images of, of modern city centers being abandoned um you know the panic of people leaving en masse the economy collapsing rapidly overnight i think it's a very imperfect analog but but at least it gives us a sense of of the the trauma involved in in this sort of of very very
0: fast urban collapse this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv marquee tv is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture with my subscription i've enjoyed watching some of the royal shakespeare company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including david tennant in richard ii and simon russell beale in the tempest I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p, with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
1: beautiful thank you for that that really gets us into that, that headspace so Okay, so we've talked about this, this, the urban collapse city centres. But of course, not all of Britain was in, in the centre of the cities. And, and you talk about, um, is it Vreged, the, the Northern English Kingdom? You, you describe it as, as Mad Max filled with these warlords. What happened on the periphery, if, if not the immediate collapse of, of the, the city centres?
2: Well, I mean, this is, this is the thing. So you have to think of um, Britain as being divided into two zones, really. And, and forgetting for a moment about, about Wales and, and, and the, the western, western periphery and what's going on above the, above the wall, you have a what we might call a, a villa zone, which is the southern portion of what is now England. That is where you have most of the agricultural land, most of the wealth is concentrated, most of the major urban centres are located there, the, the villas of the landholding class uh, you know, Gloucestershire, for example, is is full of, of palatial villas, which go into decline at the beginning of the fifth century. The northern part of, of of Britain, up to the wall, is effectively a militarised zone. It's a it's a it's a land under occupation, a very long occupation, but nevertheless, it's run by military administrators um, with garrisoned legions along the wall and and, and elsewhere in the garrison forts, um, and they are dependent on local populations for. Resources, uh, essentially agricultural produce, food. So you have a situation there where many of the, the, the legions were actively withdrawn from Britain, but not all of them. And you have border forces who remain in post and becoming increasingly integrated into the, the local societies in which they are implanted and on which they rely. But the, the infrastructure, the, the, the opportunity for relief or for orders or instructions or for pay suddenly evaporates. And so you see a tendency for these, these isolated fortresses to become adapted and elaborated in ways that imply that their, their commanders, their, their garrisons are essentially becoming semi-autonomous units. And you have to imagine, although we don't have a great deal of direct evidence for this, you have to imagine that they are doing so with the intention of controlling the local agricultural area to control the resources that they require. Now, naturally, that's going to put them in conflict with another border garrison that has taken a similar trajectory, perhaps further down the wall or perhaps somewhere else. Um, It also puts them into conflict with the pre-existing tribal hierarchies north of the wall, so where previously you may have had what seemed like a, a relatively stable uh, relatively stable frontier with a, a unified military command you end up in a situation where you have a very fragmented patchwork of local warlords all busy fortifying their own bit of terrain and no longer is there a frontier but but that that patchwork just sort of continues blends off into the north and the whole concept of a, of, a, of a fixed line in the sand is, is becomes becomes absurd.
1: Okay, so so you set the the scene brilliantly. This 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 Mad Max style civilizational collapse, and and what needs to happen in the traditional narrative is Jesus arrives and everyone suddenly realises, oh, this is the best option, this is the best religion, let's convert. Um, you know, in waves, but the, the traditional idea is that it's a teleological straight line. There's a, an interesting moment in, in Lindsay where uh, one of the, the, the um, kingdoms where um, a forum, a Roman forum is, is converted into a church and, and there are other moments you say in Sussex, eventually uh, it found its faith but lost its soul. Is that correct? Does everyone just get baptised like that?
2: Not really, no. I mean, it, it's a mixed picture. As, as <laughs> I mean, the, the the whole premise of the book really is to is to kind of emphasise this idea that you can't really draw any conclusions. Oh, certainly not on an island-wide level. Look, the, the 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 official religion, of the Roman Empire, was Christianity. At the point that the Romans left, before the Romans left, well, not, not, I'm not saying that Romans did leave in the sort of life of Brian sense, but 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 you bear with me. You know what I'm I'm driving at. So Christianity is already present within the native Romano-British population. So the fact that they start building churches within these urban spaces isn't really that surprising. What's, what's perhaps surprising is the, the, the change of use. And that, that speaks more to the, the redundancy of a big market square in a place that no longer has a market. And also to the fact that there's lots of available building materials there. <laughs> And, and the symbolic qualities of these 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 places are remembered as, as centres of Roman administration. Therefore, they have an importance, although their economic social importance may have may have sort of dwindled and, and, and bled away. They have a cachet, and so they're they're a good good place to to, to set up these religious hubs. And, and you see the similar thing happening along the along the wall as well. Border forts that develop. Chapels and and we see the, the the forts along the Saxon Shore as well in, in in Essex and elsewhere. So, generally speaking, you would have to say that Britain, on all the evidence that we have, was a Christian island for the most part south of Hadrian's Wall at the beginning of the Dark Ages. Now that starts to change with the migration that we see from Northern Europe, because the the, the migrants again, so far as we can see archaeologically. Are not Christians. They are burying their dead in manifestly non-Christian ways. They're cremating them and, and burying the remains in, in in urns. That not they're not all doing that, but but those who are are clearly not following any kind of Christian practice that that, that was was standard anywhere else. And it takes a long time for those communities to adopt Christianity. I mean, the, the traditional narrative is that uh St. Augustine turns up in, in, in Thanet in 597 and, and then the dominoes all fall in sequence. He he converts uh, the, the the Kingdom of Kent, and that influence is then dispersed throughout throughout England by missionary activity. And the, the kings of England, of the of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, should we say all eventually see the error of their former ways and become, become Christians. Uh, and after that, we, you know, we're, we're back into a safely sort of Christian island territory again. It's sort of what happens, but, but it's a massively simplified view. But one thing we know, because there were already loads of Christians in Britain, the idea that, that some of these, these places, to, to, to pick an example, you know, in Essex, they'd never heard of, of Christianity before, St. Augustine's mission turned up, is is ludicrous, because we, we've got evidence from from Prittlewell, the the extraordinary burial chamber at South End, of Christian imagery crosses having been uh, gold foil crosses having been placed on the eyes of the of the dead person in the tomb. So again, that doesn't mean we know that he was a Christian or she was a Christian, but it does mean uh that certainly the the ideas about Christianity or the imagery of Christianity was was widely circulating before any particular one missionary priest turned up there with, with, a, with a, a sanctioned papal message.
1: Thank you for that, by the way. That's beautifully complicated, as I expected. <laughs> um, I, I want to change tack and, and zoom out uh, and, and talk about the fact that throughout all of the work that I've read of yours, landscape and place is, is so important. You write, all places have their ghosts and Britain is thick with them. Um, and then more generally, you, know, you, you talk about how kings... You know, ascribe an entrenched power into landscapes. You talk about uh, supernatural forces once once invested themselves in the landscape. I did a history degree at university and never went on a field trip. Do we do we value the place and the landscape enough in history?
2: Possibly not. I think it's much more of a concern in in archaeology, and um, it's been a major theme for for many years now because the materiality, the physicality of things, is what what, what drives archaeologists, and so trying to understand why someone might, for example, want to bury their their dead kinsperson in the side of a pre-existing pre, uh, prehistoric burial mound is a question that needs an answer. Historical records won't provide one. Uh, and so by borrowing tools from anthropology and from, from prehistoric archaeology, we can start to come up with good conjectures about why that might be so and whether that's to do with drawing on legitimacy conferred by previous inhabitants uh, of the island, or whether it's uh, an imagined sense of continuity that these are my ancestors, even though they manifestly were not, or or possibly were not. Um, It's hard to be absolutely categorical about it, but but clearly there's something profound happening when, when you're making those decisions. They're not random choices, and there are patterns that are repeated throughout Britain. Uh, And it doesn't just uh, apply to burial, it applies to lots of different ways in which the landscape is is used and reinvested with with significance. Another way that we we see this taking hold is through the the naming of places. So the application of Old English names to pre-existing features of the landscape, which formerly had British or Romano-British names, gives us a, a window into how they were perceived. There are places all over all over England, in particular, that, that compound personal names with the, the word for barrow, for example, which suggests that they were imagined to be the burial place of a person of that name, or had a particular significance to a person of that name. And legends and mythologies grow up around these sorts of these sorts of locations as as uh, kingdoms, communities, dynasties sought to kind of. Develop the, the narratives, the mythologies that, that gave them heft.
1: And that sense of deep past is, is very present in, in, in all of the stories that the kingdoms tell themselves. But you said earlier that, that the Dark Ages were at least a little bit dark in terms of tone. But also the landscape was dark, or at least darker than it is now. You know, Sussex was this land of salt marsh- marshes and Lincolnshire was wetlands and the Weald Forest um, is basically Fangorn from, from Tolkien, right? Like no, no church, no cemetery, no farmstead was ever found or has been found there in, in three centuries.
2: Yeah.
1: How important is that to this story, that, that Britain physically was a very different place? I think it's, it's hugely important, actually, there are
2: you know, many of the landscapes are still present. and I think that's that can be really inspiring to, uh, to recognize that that the shapes of some of these kingdoms are still discernible on the ground. You know, Hwicce, for example, is a, essentially a sort of a basin depression in the Seven Valley between the Malverns and the Cotswolds. You know, it, it exists as a geographical entity if you choose to see it in that way. But other places, as you rightly say, have have changed character a great deal. You know, North Lincolnshire has been, you know, most of its Fenland has been drained and, and turned over to agriculture. But in the early medieval period, it was effectively an island bounded by salt marshes, fens, swampland, overflowing rivers, which gave it a character that is entirely unlike the one that it has today and and likewise yeah the the, the sort of isolation of, of the the South Saxons by this enormous sort of impenetrable band of, of, of the Weald um, arguably preserved some of its its pre-christian culture for longer than, than it survived anywhere else in southern Britain. Uh, so yes absolutely it, it, it's hugely significant both on a, a sort of an imaginative level for us to be able to understand and, 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 and try to get a sense of or try to be able to think ourselves into the period a little bit, but also it has a, a real historical impact
1: on, on the way things could and did operate. Mm-hmm. And, and it also it helps to define, as you said, the borderlands of, of the kingdoms. And, and I really got the sense, you, know, you mentioned earlier the, the big kingdoms, um, I, I really got the sense that this book was often an exercise in standing up for the little guys. You talk of, of the realm of Lindsay being caught between sort of big power ping pong um Pauis was beaten up by mercy and gangsters, are you just on on behalf of these small kingdoms standing up to the bullies
2: oh, I don't know. I think you inevitably start to feel a bit of sympathy for some of these these characters. you know the kings of of Huitje, for example just they 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 turn up in in history in the seventh century and almost immediately just get demoted. In every, every new mention of a, of a new king, he sort of goes down the, the social pecking order until effectively they're kind of managed out of existence entirely. And yeah, you do, you start to see, you know, Mercia and, and Northumbria and Wessex as aggressive, predatory, bullying powers. And, and you know, I don't want to draw any, any, any sort of heavy-handed modern analogies, but, you know, we know what that looks like. And it's 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 an ugly business, and and I think so. Yeah, there is an element of, of of wanting to stand up for these these smaller smaller places, and they don't get their due. That's the other thing. You know, we we tell history. Um, it's a cliche, but that history is written by by the victors. But it's particularly true for the early Middle Ages because the number of sources we have are so small, and that's given rise to narratives that are very very heavily skewed towards. Not just the big kingdoms, but in particular to, to the West Saxon kingdom, which ultimately gave us the, the dynasty that would unite England for the first time. And so it can be easy to see it as a sort of a, a simple teleological narrative whereby these big kingdoms and Wessex in particular had a sort of a, a manifest destiny to, to, to rule over the whole island. And of course, that's not true. It could have gone in any number of different directions, you know, a kingdom like Essex, for example, you know, on paper could have could have been a real contender. And it's a lot of bad luck and a few bad decisions that meant that it, it, it sort of dwindled away to a small county before being eventually expunged.
1: Bad luck and bad decisions. Um, how much of history is is up to that? Going back briefly to the landscape discussion, and and you quote Tolkien beautifully. He says that only the hills remain, in quite a sort of spine tingling way. Um, Tolkien is clearly an influence on you, and and sort of is is it baked into this. You say that that parts of of Cornwall, are sort of like Kirithungal. Um, you, you quote his his lesser known children's stories. Why why is he an influence to you? Why does he remain so in this? period of time and, and so sort of what does he bring to the study?
2: I, I think if you were to ask anybody who who's studied the early middle ages of my generation at least I, I, I can't speak for anybody younger than myself but from the conversations I've had with my peers there's really nobody who hasn't been influenced by Tolkien in some way and the reason for that is that so much of his middle earth uh, narratives in particular are, are drawn from his own deep learning about the linguistics, primarily of the old, the old English language and, and related languages, and his understanding of of the literary world created by Old English speakers, which is not the same as having a deep understanding of the history of the period, because I don't think Tolkien actually did have a particularly sound or firm grip on on the, on the history of it. But the way he understood the, the the mythos and the languages profoundly shaped not not just his own writing but also the 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 whole aesthetic and imagery and the way that we, we we view the period and the other thing I suppose as you you rightly allude to is is that that so much of Tolkien's writing is founded in a in a, an appreciation for landscape that undoubtedly influenced me I think it, it, it's in other the work of others uh, uh, as well and uh, you know the, the 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 easiest through line I suppose to find between landscape and Tolkien and and the, the study of the, the the period, the series of the period, is through, through place names, as I, I already discussed a little bit.
1: Mm. Tolkien was a man of his time, shall we say, sort of conservatively. Um, he, he There's a whole debate at the moment about whether he was racist or, or just reflective of the time. He, you know, he, he opposed apartheid South Africa and hated Goebbels and sort of Aryan theories, but he also Called orcs, you know, the least lovely Mongol types. So, you know, debate. But I think what's, what's undeniable is that the term Anglo Saxon, which is something that he, you know, uh, takes a lot of um, inspiration from and, and plenty of people l- less tastefully have taken inspiration from, has become problematic and has become politically charged. Could you just discuss briefly both the historical problematic nature of the term Anglo Saxon, but then also the contemporary political one as well, please?
2: Yeah, okay. So this is obviously contentious stuff. The term itself is a genuinely old term. So it's first used actually in continental sources in the 8th century, but it's also adopted by King Alfred and is used thereafter to describe his ambitions to rule over a united England made up of, in his mind, Angles and Saxons. So... it has a legitimacy in the sense that it is a term that was used by people who we now call Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> but it it was never a term that was used by people of themselves probably at any point during the Middle Ages. Um, if they called themselves anything, it would have been English and then only you know, in a quite late context, because that idea of, of Englishness as an ethnic identity much much later on, you know, beyond the period that, that we're talking about here, where it is used by Bede, for example, it, it's primarily in a linguistic sense. So when he talks about the ecclesiastical history of the English people, he means the English-speaking people, to, to borrow a Churchillian phrase. So its uncritical use for the period that I am calling the Dark Ages, for the time being, is problematic on those grounds. Now, it's justified because, Bede, with recourse to, to Bede again, because Bede describes the, the, the migrants who came to Britain as being primarily Angles and Saxons, so, i.e. people from Anglia and people from Saxony. And so a sort of portmanteau of those two identities seems to be quite a reasonable one. However, there's always a caveat to everything. We know that those weren't the only people who migrated to Britain in this period. It completely ignores all the people who were here already here, as if The only people who ever spoke Old English were descended entirely from migrants from Anglia or Saxony, which is an arrogant nonsense. So it's problematic in its own terms. It became even more problematic when it became used essentially as a synonym for white Englishness. And that's something that begins to develop in the 19th century. And it came about really because... The, sort of an increasing interest in this period of history, and particularly an interest in the, I suppose, the reasons why the English uh, or the, the anglo the Anglocentric sense of what Britain was ha- had become and was so globally powerful and successful, apparently. And people started to seek the answers to this. And the, the prevailing sort of racial theories of the day posited the notion that, well, it must be something innate, some sort of innate genius of the the blood and heritable qualities. And where can we find this? Well, we can find this in these you know Angles and Saxons who came here from from Scandinavia and northern, northern Europe back in back in the dark ages. And so this notion of Anglo-Saxonness as being a superior uh, quality, a, a superior identity takes hold at that point. And it was enormously popular. So you find that, you know, it cuts across political boundaries. Um, Thomas Carlyle, the arch-conservative, held these views, William Morris, the socialist, held identical views. It, was, it became an absolutely sort of accepted and universal idea, uh, essentially, in, in late Victorian England. And it, it is carried across into, into the, the, how should we say, white colonies abroad. So Anglo-Saxonism, i.e. the idea that, that there is a genius to the white English-speaking people, is then sort of exported around the globe with horrible consequences. I mean, you can draw a direct through line from Bede, frankly, to, to Manifest Destiny in, in the United States. This idea that white settlers had a, a, a right, a divinely ordained right to, to conquer and, and, and um Dominate uh, whatever territory they came across
1: and the irony is of course that at the time that the anglo-saxons were kicking around India China and the Middle East were the, the powerhouses so
2: Really oh, I quite. Know. I mean, they're, they're, I mean it's, an, it's a ludicrous notion and it's been thoroughly debunked on almost every possible conceivable count, yeah. but It has undeniably had an incredibly uh, powerful hold on, on the Western psyche in general and so I think it's that, I mean, I would, I would draw a distinction between the use of the term Anglo-Saxon, which, which is sort of a historiographical term, and this notion of Anglo-Saxonism, which sort of describes the, the attitudes that, the, that developed around how, how Anglo-Saxon identity was perceived. But I can certainly understand why people are, uh, uh, have, have a problem with using Anglo-Saxon as an ethnic label uncritically. On, on two counts, really. One, one, one is this, this sort of political dimension to it, and it's a sort of deeply damaging way in which it's been used in the past. But also, just as I, as I described at the beginning, it's not a very good term for the people who are in, in what is now England at the time that we're calling them Anglo-Saxons, because they weren't calling themselves Anglo-Saxons, nor was anyone else.
1: So, you know, something present right your answer there is, is that, try as they might, historians can't get away from... Now and, and from the present and, and the act of writing, and I thought I'd finish off of my section before we go to audience questions, with just a few questions on that. I think that the central tension, if, if I had to point to one in the book, is I'll quote you here uh, "This is a lost world, irrecoverable, really, a whisper in the moorland grass. Yet it was once a real place of people and things of daily lives and a thousand tragedies and hopes." It's a, it's a hard task, but, but how important is it to actively empathize with historical agents? Is it always possible Where, where do you fit in, within that
2: yeah it's a it's a really good question i think because um i can't remember if I said this on the on the uh, in our discussion or or it was something we discussed previously, but we're used to, as medieval historians to to talking about big blocks of time centuries and centuries I know we were talking about um the collapse of roman Roman towns and um getting down to that, drilling down to that human level can be very, very challenging in these periods. But I, I do think that it's worth doing because otherwise we lose sight of the reality of it. It becomes a, an academic exercise or it becomes a sort of an abstract um, sort of cardboard cutout of a, of a world that we, we don't believe in. And that was one of my, my criticisms of, of, of history writing. And it was one of, the, one of the reasons that I was inspired to write or try to write history myself in the first place was that I, I was frustrated reading narrative history that just didn't convince me that these were real places with real people in them. It always felt to me like a you know a flimsy kind of theatre theatre stage with you know characters would come and characters would go and no sense of their humanity. And if we really want to understand why people do the things they do in the past, we have to invest them with real human qualities. Otherwise it becomes boiled down to processes and, you know, abstract political economic theories and everything's explained with a model. And And that, that's just not how real life works. People do crazy things. Um, and they make mistakes and, and things go wrong. And you know.
1: But what I find so interesting is that, is on the one hand, there are moments of instant recognizability. So um, that you went through a list of names that roughly translate as dog lord, top dog, etc., which just seems like sort of lads holiday t-shirts, these sort of great warlords of of the North. But then, you know, so you have that on one side, and then on the other side, you have the fact that people didn't write down dates and borders. You you, you write this in in a footnote, you say um, Paulinus and and Data, you say one of the the only verbal portraits of the medieval age. So in other words, were people just not writing about how people looked? There are moments where you feel very, like it's a very different worldview, and then there are moments where you feel like you're, you're completely empathising. Are there any others that stand out in terms of that, that gulf between now and then?
2: I mean, the, the strangeness, I mean, you hit on an interesting tension in the book, actually, is that I, I am interested in, in humanising and, and, and making tangible, making real the, the sense of these places and these people. But there is a, there is a degree of, of strangeness that I don't think we can, we can or should shy away from. You know, that's another problem in modern discourse about the Middle Ages in particular, that that many people want to find themselves in the Middle Ages, and they want to find validation and validating myths and validating stories. They want to believe that, you know, they're the descendants of Vikings, and the Vikings were just like they are, or, or whatever it might be. But of course, that's ridiculous. They weren't like like you, they were completely different. They had a completely different outlook, a, a different mindset entirely. So finding that balance—that yes, there's a common shared humanity, and yes, these are real human beings, and they 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 hurt and they felt pain and they felt loss and strove to understand the world. That 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 that's that's key. But but without pretending that they were, you know, a, a bloke you'd meet down the pub, or, or you know, it's just that that's just not the world we're in. The last point I'd make about that is that we're, as always, constrained by the sources that survive, all of which, with the possible exception of some bits of poetry and maybe a few you know inscriptions on stone, are written by, and probably those as well, are written by by ecclesiastics. And they have a, a worldview that is very specific and doesn't lend itself to the sorts of things that we might want them to talk about. Now the fact that, that Bead only includes one verbal portrait of a person in his history, perhaps it tells us that those things weren't interesting in the early Middle Ages. It certainly tells us that they weren't particularly interesting to Bede, but they might have been very interesting to the sorts of people who weren't writing you know, ecclesiastical histories. So you know, that's something to always bear in mind, that we, we've got an extremely Partial fragment. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, what we know compared to what we don't know is is not even the tip of an iceberg. It's you know a, a snowflake on the tip of an iceberg.
1: There was something that you um, that you said in, in your answer there, which is we we look to find ourselves in the past. And there's a fantastic question from Natalia here, which is. Um, what are your thoughts on the romanticisation of worlds gone by or the worlds that might have been? For example, there was a Victorian aristocrat who built himself a fake Druid temple so he could walk among woodland ruins. Is this a fun, harmless way for people to engage with history or does it muddy the waters for future generations?
2: Ooh, that's a really good question, isn't it? Because I, there's part of me that absolutely loves that idea. I, I I, want to build a Druid temple in my garden and, and walk around in it at night. That, that would be brilliant. Um <laughs> But but what do, we, what, what do we think of that? And what does that, what does that mean? I don't know. The thing is, when you drill down into a lot of these revivalist and retrievalist impulses and, and the movements they give rise to, very often, uh, and I won't say exclusively, but I would say more often than not, perhaps by a large margin, they are undergirded by a, a worldview that is exclusionary and narrow. And you see I'm picking, trying to pick my words very carefully here. Romantically nationalist in a way that often bears very little relationship to the realities of the past or to the realities of the present, frankly. And that can be very dangerous because where does that lead you other than into an unachievable fantasy, often to the detriment of, of those who don't fit into your fantasised worldview, right? So those are, those, are the, those are the big dangers.
1: I think that just the, 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 the major victim of that sort of process is complexity, is nuance. And, and you, there's a moment where you talk about Gildas and Bede, um, and I have a quote here, um, complex regional identities were increasingly considered unhelpful by the great power, uh, players of power politics. And I assume to, to Bede and Gildas who kind of go, oh, there was a kingdom over there, but it doesn't really matter because it doesn't fit into my narrative. To what extent is just, just nuance and complexity a vital force in in, in what you do? Yeah,
2: that, that that's really what I'm what I'm interested in in drawing out, particularly in this book. I mean, I'm I'm interested in, in in doing so in all of my work because there are so many voices that are that are silenced by these monolithic narratives that are that are, you know get built up into a into a sort of into a train and then that's driven through your education system and everyone comes out the other end with the same idea about the past and often it's often demonstrably false um sometimes slightly sinister and i think that more than that there are wonderful stories and 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 things about the past that just get overlooked you know i mean i was i was amazed that in some ways i was able to write a, a 400 page book or i don't know how many words pages it is actually but not, not shy of that, about nine kingdoms about which almost nothing is known from this period, because the established sort of idea about the Dark Ages is, oh, well, there's nothing you can say, really. And that's people talking about, you know, Wessex and Mercia. But, I, you know, I wanted to show with this that actually no, there really are things that can be said, and, and that those things are just as interesting, even if a lot of it is is kind of pulling apart the things we thought we knew previously.
1: There's a really nice question from KP, which is, um, curious as to what changes, if any, you would like to see within the history curriculum at junior and senior school level?
2: Well, uh, I mean, it's been a very, very long time since I paid any close attention to what's in the, the current history curriculum, and it's been... It's probably
1: good for your sanity. Probably.
2: If- I, I, don't, I don't think it makes for particularly edifying reading. I mean, it, I studied history at GCSE and A-level, as you would have expected, and... Um, I mean, then in the 90s, it was, I I, I I mean, I remember we did Tudors and we did the First World War twice. That, that I remember that much. Industrial Revolution, I think we got twice as well. I don't think that we were taught medieval history at all. Um, I was fortunate, actually, at secondary school, I had a wonderful teacher who the, our headmaster, Dr. Graham Lowe, um, who was uh, who trained as an archaeologist and had a particular interest in the Civil War, and he he found a, a, a specialist module to teach A level on the Civil War. So we got a really detailed sort of degree level introduction to to, to the English Civil War, which was wonderful and you know miles away from anything we'd we'd had or you know kind of the depth and the complexity that we'd had elsewhere. In answer to the question, uh, it's difficult for me to answer it without knowing what's in it, but I would suspect that what isn't in it is a lot of the complexity and nuance that we've just described. And I think there's obviously not enough proper discussion of minority contributions to British life. The, The actual realities of Britain's imperial legacy, I don't suppose, are covered in anything like adequate detail or with adequate honesty. Likewise, some of the complexities around the First and Second World Wars and Britain's role in those wars is, I'm also pretty certain, not handled the way that I would handle it.
1: So more complexity and nuance. Um, Just just one final question for me. One of the other emotions that I I was surprised to feel throughout the whole book that that came across really clearly was was that idea of humility. You know, kings and borders and gods, even even gods and and power um, you talk about can be forgotten bewilderingly quickly. I am standing here and I can see the city of London from my window. And I think that a lot of places and a lot of people nowadays have this arrogance about, well, we'll be here forever forever. Is there anything that, having studied a series of civilizations that collapsed, that you maybe take into the modern day, any sort of level of humility maybe that you want to impart as some some closing words? (laughs) Goodness me. I think you said it very well, actually. I think there's nothing
2: that we can take for granted in this this world. And I think that the last few years have proven that more than adequately, actually. The speed of unravelling. That can occur with with events that no one can foresee, can happen at any moment, you know. And I, I was thinking about this the other day when, when when the pandemic first started. I think, okay, well, that, that's that's pestilence. What, what what's next? And of course, you know, fast forward to the beginning of uh, of this year, and we've got war in Europe. Hard on the heels of war in Europe, we've got grain shortages, uh, rampant inflation. So you know, that's that's three of the four horsemen. You know, it's it's what what comes next that worries me, it's got to be something bad, hasn't it? Something sort of wrath of God type comets or nuclear disasters, and that, that that's to, you know, inundations and tsunamis, I don't know. But, but these, things, these things genuinely um, appear as if, from, as if from nowhere. And of course, with hindsight, we can work it out or we can see this coming. That, you know, clearly, there was going to be something like that. But at the time, it feels as though you're, you're, you're blindsided. And it will happen and it will continue to happen. And, and certainly this notion that, you know, from a very deeply provincial level, the, the United Kingdom is some sort of special case in, in, uh, with a, the with a, with a destiny to endure the centuries, I think. I mean, if this history tells you anything, it's the, that that is an absolute fallacy. Whatever this, this island looks like in, in 500 years time, it won't look anything like it does today.
1: Wow. Well, what a, what a what a note to end on. Um, very sadly, we are we are out of time. Uh, I could talk to you for hours, Tom. we will have to come back with your next book. Um, but speaking of, of books, please, everyone go check out Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. Um, do head over to the How To Academy website for, for more talks. Tom, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. Audience, thank you for your questions. We hope to see you all very soon. Stay healthy and safe. Tom, the final word to you.
2: Well, thank you very much for listening to me. That's all I can say. And thank you, Luke, for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, everyone. Take
2: care.
0: This episode of the podcast starred Tom Williams and was produced and presented by Luke naylor Perrott. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed this one, go back two weeks, and you'll find Luke's interview with Oxford historian and novelist Harry Sidebottom, who tells the story of the polyamorous and murderous teenage emperor of Rome, Heliogabalus. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.